Welcome to Get With IT, a podcast by IT Ops Times. The host today is Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of IT Ops Times. Hello, everyone. Yes, and welcome to another edition. I'm excited to, today to be here with uh, Jonathan Wright. He's the Chief Technologist at testing company Keysight. How are you doing, Jonathan? Amazing. And it's been too long, David. You know, we, we were last talking at KubeCon in Detroit. Of That's all right. things dev. So, you know, looking forward to continuing the conversation today. Absolutely. Yeah. I, what, it was one of my favorite conversations at the conference, in fact, because you just are touch on a lot of different things in your roles, I guess, and, and just have a, a real a great way of uh, describing them. So uh, I'm just going to go down the list of notes that I actually took from that meeting. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to start off with was you had mentioned um, a concept called uh, quality stream management. So people talk about value streams all the time. Uh, quality stream is kind of, I guess, a spinoff of, uh, of that in some way. So, uh, uh, you know, let me hear about it. You know, is this being implemented? Is it still just a high level concept or, you know, what's what's up with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm bringing it first to your listeners, but, um, you know, actually uh, part of our team, uh, Dan, who's our CIO, um, you know, he's got this 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 kind of vision, I suppose, coming from a hardware background uh, around uh, quality certification or accreditation of, of quality within software in the same way that it's done within hardware. Uh, and so, you know, this is obviously a bit of a culture shift. We know from a dev perspective, just the sheer amount of complexity within modern software development. So how is this even possible? And, you know, we've kind of looked at it uh, very much like, a, I guess, the energy efficiency kind of uh, certifications that you get, which kind of say, oh, you're a level B or you're level C, and you're trying to get to the next level. And, and, and part of that could be process. So if you're on your journey for DevOps or lean engineering or some other type of scaled agile framework, uh, you are building your processes. You've got the technology that you're using, uh, and you, your different methodologies that you might be implementing. So it, in, it independently assesses all those components. That it might be looking at security, usability, you know, uh, compliance, regulatory, whatever else it might need to do on layers on top of that. So how do we articulate all of this up from an organizational level? So, you know, we can understand how to do business with these organizations. And to me, uh, I got really excited because there was the new DOD modernization bill, uh, which they started looking at trying to understand, well, what's what are these products there you know, being delivered into the organizations, into, into secure government and departments of defense, for instance. Um, and, you know, if you're dealing with a, a grade A business, uh, and, you know, something goes wrong, how quickly they're able to respond to that. So maybe issues that we've had in the past with Log4j, for instance, you know, the ability to quickly change that out to Logstash or something else. You know, really, it's about agility to actually be able to respond, but also a level of diligence that's been brought in. So really, it's kind of being able to understand what's under the hood. And I think we don't really know that. We know that with our energy efficiency on our you know appliances within our home and we know what they are when we pick up our phone and look at the the ce that kind of says oh we're all right to fly back on that plane and nothing's going to interfere with the the traffic control systems um but we don't do that with software when we put the dependency back on organizations like salesforce and 
you know, workday, do we know what their latest build's done? Does that mean that it's going to impact, you know, does the latest version of SAP break your entire organization who are dependent on that ERP CRM? Uh, system. So I think it's a, an interesting concept. Now, how do we implement it? It would be the next question. Yes, that would be the next question. But uh, one thing I want to ask about is your take on the whole speed versus quality debate that organizations have internally. You know, they want to deliver software as quickly as possible, but they also want to leave, uh, deliver high quality software. And uh, very often those things are at odds. So where where does that fall and, and how organizations kind of deal with that? Yeah, so interestingly, it's kind of um it's kind of one of the pillars. So that triangle of of speed, quality, and cost is the infinite dilemma, right? You right. can you can move it in one direction or the other, but you know, how does it you know scale? And I, you know, I the example, which might not be a very good example, is if you look at German car manufacturers. Uh, you know, with this kind of idea of quality and then perception, I suppose, for a second of quality of how their manufacturing processes, maybe some of the Kanban stuff that some of the Japanese kind of manufacturing has brought to us. But then you look at other brands and you kind of don't associate that. You Maybe you associate it more with speed or the ability to produce large amounts of cars. Uh, you might even look at it from a technology perspective that that car's more about technology than it is about build quality. Um, so there's a, obviously a cost component in there because if you're going to buy a car that's so engineered that the materials are incredibly expensive, that's going to bring the cost up. So we all make a decision when we buy our family car or our luxury cars of what we're able to kind of position. And there's pretty much a product for each one of those categories that we're thinking in our head. Uh, and I look at that very much like the software development lifecycle. You know, there is quality isn't just in the eye of the beholder at the at the top level. It's in individual teams. You might have rock star developers who are really holding the line at, uh, you know, being able to kind of keep that team to a certain level of quality. Their belief in the quality might be high. How do you make sure you're what's coming down from a C-suite of our beliefs within our company is that we're a, we we sell our product at a certain level of quality, and our underlining processes are at that same level. And you know, in the old days, we might have been looking at something like CMMI and saying, "Well, NASA is famously level five, but now that SpaceX is around, they've actually dropped to level two, two point two being the average, because they've got to respond to that change." Now, that doesn't mean that they're adding any more levels of risk. They've already got a level of maturity. They're just changing the speed of how they deliver because they're having to deal with the competitor threat. And I think this is what digital transformation really taught us is this. You have to make a decision whether or not you're going to you know, potentially pivot and challenge uh, an organization for a new technology, something that comes in and disrupts your industry like ChatGPT. Everyone's quick to kind of say, oh, I'm going to bring my own flavor out or I'm going to launch my own variation of this and how long how long does it take for them to respond to this disruption and i think this is what we're seeing is risk and quality are a really difficult one but brand damage by bringing something to market let's take the the google ai for a second you know the damage it took on their short uh, their stock price by rushing something out even though it was much more trained and much more evolved than um 
the, the, the rest of the other uh, large language models, there was this kind of question in the back, which they said, well, we don't want to replace our flagship product, which is called Google, because everyone uses it every day. So if we replace it, like Bing did with their introduction of, of, of a large language model, they've right. got to make a decision about product, risk, brand, damage to the brand. And I think that's a real challenge now with, and that's why it's so important to articulate quality in the same way we articulate value. One of the things we talked about in October was this um, uh, Performance Advisory Council, which uh, I now understand uh, has kind of morphed into um, something else. And uh, maybe you could uh, tell us, uh, you know, what the state of things are with that. Yeah, it was really interesting. Well, it's actually a guy from Boeing who has looked at uh, spinning up something around performance engineering and, uh, and created a bit of an advisory board of like uh, followed uh, members uh, that wanted to be able to share their patterns and and uh, approaches to performance engineering. And uh, it was funny because he shared a document which we actually helped. Uh, I sit on the ISO committee for 29119 part uh, 12, which is for uh, artificial intelligence in, in software testing. I did a book earlier last year on, on software testing and AI but we actually pushed a lot of what's in the original parts four and five of this, the testing standard around all this list, which was over 80 different types of performance testing based on, you know, uh, some of the lessons learned within things like aerospace and defense, which is, is, is very comprehensive. Whereas most of us are very used to things like spike or stress or soak testing and actually well what is the variations of that to to kind of really understand performance engineering principles so what we realized was there was this kind of lack of and i'm going to use the word engineering and and, and maybe even refer back to people like tom gill back in in the 70s and 80s who were writing things like language to be more ambiguous with requirements you know uh evo for evolutional Agile before, you know, Agile and the manifesto was established. But some of those founding father principles were all based on good engineering disciplines. So actually, we came together and I was part of the uh, 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 the largest uh, user community, uh, which was a software community called Vivid, which had over 80,000 members in 126 countries. And they were really focused on bringing people together. It was a non-for-profit uh, and I had the pleasure to serve on the board for a number of years. And we took kind of the lessons of large communities and communities of practice, in essence, and we formed something called the, the Test Engineering Institute based out of the Engineering Council's requirements for chartered statuses within professionals. And we looked at sitting that down with that square format and saying, OK, how do we help people from a personal development be able to be recognized within the industry, whether they're doing security engineering or performance engineering or automation engineering, where can we find them a home so that they can learn, they can contribute, but they can also, um, you know, get involved with things like the ISO and, and different, you know, uh, professional bodies to help push that industry forwards. And, and so therefore, the Test Engineering uh, Institute was born and we, we've been really focused on uh, again, a non-for-profit, but help people who are uh, wanting to develop their skills in this area. That's uh, that's great. Uh, okay, so uh, moving as we did to our conversation onto multiple different topics in a very short amount of time, 
Uh, I'm sure you must have opinions on generative AI, as everybody in the world does these days. And uh, love to hear about uh, you know where you stand on things. Uh, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it helpful? Is it damaging? Will people lose their jobs? Uh, everybody's in a panic. So uh, yeah, what's your take? Yeah, so it is a really interesting topic. Uh, and literally, uh, uh, we would I was talking to Diego from Forrester earlier around. He, he refers to it as uh, Turing bots, but really about uh, large language models in and generative AI. Uh, and we started on this kind of journey probably uh, the start of probably last year. Uh, and you know, we we had a we implemented in in the early days Chat GPT if you three dot five. Uh, with this idea of looking at new use cases, because obviously there was a, a lot of excitement around, well, you can write code. And then, of course, we saw within the dev community the explosions of things like Copilot, which was like fantastic. Now we've, we're, 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 we're getting this kind of superpower that, you know, as I'm a developer or I'm a tester or I'm on operations, that actually I can start leveraging this ability for, you know, in essence, what's being trolled on the internet or Google, uh, you know, uh, the, the top end of the non-dark web area has been trained into these large language models, which is incredibly useful. However, if you look at the overall landscape for a second, um, you know, one of the shortfalls, I suppose, for, for the, the GPT kind of landscape is the short-term memory. So in essence, part of the legalization and regulatory kind of challenges around um, you know, generative AI for a second is, um, you know, are you asking it questions that could be potentially classed as, as IP, right? So, you know, if I ask it, you know, what's the the tolerance within a braking uh, system, you know, within these certain conditions, and it's able to cite me some information, am I giving it uh, something that is in, in essence confidential? So what we saw was the shift and in introduction of things like Alpaca, from the MIT guys and Google to kind of say, can we actually build our own large language models? And that quickly led into a lot of my R&D guys looking at deploying and training our own uh, variation of this. And I think this is what we're going to see an explosion set definitely once the regulation and the, the compliance really kind of hurts and, and pauses things this year. But next year, we'll definitely see the, the birth of, of pre-trained uh, a more IP internal IP focused industry uh, GPTs, whether that be insurance, retail, uh, very similar to what we saw with AI and you know fashion and, and wherever else it is. So we kind of saw this shift, uh, which was great. But really, what was the the big noise around uh, GPT four? Well, it was the visual aspect. If you remember the the, the excitement of oh, I've written on a napkin a, a joke app. Now launch it in into the uh, app store, and it did it within a matter of minutes. Now that was about visual recognition. It's something that wasn't really launched uh, and hasn't been launched yet. But actually, there is versions of visual GPT that are, we've started experimenting with the Microsoft version, a few other ones which actually allow it to understand and recognize a system. So if you feed it a system, it can understand how the data is wanted to be entering, you know, it, the accessibility rules, maybe security looks at OWASP or, you know, uh, zapped uh, scripts that it can generate to test that and look at the code and apply secure coding approaches to it. You know, part of it is giving it eyes. And and so this is a really big step forwards in, the, uh, in marrying the, not just the text input, but actually the visual input. Um, yeah. And then the next thing is really Auto GPT. And I don't know if you've come across Auto GPT as of yet. 
So what AutoGPT does is it kind of adds the short-term, long-term memory problems. So if you think of an army of, in essence, Turing bots or, or generative AIs um, working as part of an overall task, and that task might be, I would like to build an application which is a financial service fintech product based on this kind of uh, maybe disruption of being able to offer, you know, zero um, costs and 1%, you know, cashback or something. So I come up with a business concept and it not only builds the software from Copilot or whatever tool it uses, but it also deploys it into and sets up those accounts in my pipeline. It generates monitoring tools to start monitoring. It generates uh, decentralized uh, DeFi, uh, decentralized financed products for blockchain or whatever else it needs to do. And it goes off and solves the entire problem. And what you're doing is giving it time and obviously inserting compute to uh, solve a very large problem with multiple of these instances running, some of them strengthening it, some of them getting the right re results in a kind of a canary AB kind of landscape some realizing that actually the model didn't work. So it might launch five or six different competitor fintech products and see how each one of them perform. So it's quite a, a, a scary concept of adding in this. Now, does it mean that um, people are going to lose jobs? And I think the answer is no. I think part of it is it's augmenting the specialist skills and the specialist knowledge that we have within our industries. I think that's the big kind of concern is, is you know, are these things doing anything more than remove the digital grind of, okay, well, I've had a problem. I've tried to deploy this uh, meantime to recovery. And it's, should that just be automated? Of course it should be. Yeah. And, and it's just automation to a level, another level. But you need to be able to learn those cognitive skills to be able to talk to the generative AI or even an auto ML model. You need to know your way around enough to understand where the human in the loop is still incredibly valuable. And I think that's the key now. Right. Yep. No, we've certainly heard that, uh, you know, but we've also heard people uh, who are, you know, not in technical fields. Now, you know, GPT can, you know, write an article. So who needs journalists or who needs marketing people? Because GPT can come up with slogans and uh, you know, so that's where I think more of the fear is that actually in, in the technology end where, of course, it, it is a beautiful tool to augment what people are doing. We actually have an article running in our uh, May issue uh, from a guy who uh, had uh, was a Java developer, uh, runs, uh, I think it's called the Code Gym uh, for, for Java. And he asked it to write a simple Java application and it got a lot of things wrong and, uh, you know, he was just showing that, you know, yeah, it's useful for certain things, but other things you really kind of have to be careful. How much of that is it just the model not yet being trained on enough of, of those things, you know, where people are jumping to conclusions already about this is great, this is poor, this is going to work, this is going to kill jobs. You know, we're still very early on in this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's the also the big scary concern is that where people were kind of looking at general intelligence, I think, General intelligence is worth thinking about for a second is that general intelligence is not the singularity. You know, general intelligence is really taking narrow intelligence, which worked for specific small tasks where we've trained ML for, for many years and we've been using it, whether it be computer vision or something else, 
uh, and we're very comfortable, but it's so narrow that we we see it as we don't see it as black magic anymore. So you know, part of it is you know there's this fear of the unknown of how fast this will ramp up and how potentially this is going to get to a point where it can do these kind of tasks, which we're concerned potentially of human-based ones. But I think this is the this is the big challenge. Humans make mistakes, and it's like when I when I looked at ChatGPT 4's announcement around it passing the bar, and then also outperforming a third-year med student from a medical doctor's perspective, and then it got blocked within Congress for being able to actually you know have it represent you within court, and then you know uh, my friend Jason Arben, who used to run Test.ai. Uh, but used to be at Google, he wrote the book on how Google tests with a friend of mine, Jay, uh, James Whitaker. You know, he kind of got to this point and said, "Okay, well, yeah, it's it it, it can go so far, but there's still massive limitations within within the these kind of tools that actually you do need the human input." And so he he fed the entire ISTQB, which is the the test for testers, uh, and it passed. 80% and you kind of said okay well that's great um but if you look at the track of a medical doctor or even a you know a performance of somebody else within a professional discipline they still make errors they but then they're held accountable for those errors from a, a legal process that if you're a medical doctor and you keep on killing people yes your track record's not going to look very good if you know one out of 10 requests you put through doesn't cr- create the right content for you you know, is that any better or any less? And I think a lot of people have had maybe 90% fake news around this. Um, And you you see people like Elon saying, no, it's really bad. And really what he's saying is he got kicked off the board from ChatGPT because they wanted to make him CEO. Uh, He wanted to be CEO and be the face of it. And they said no. Uh, And then he's recently launched his own X.ai to catch up with the artificial intelligence so that he can bring his own uh, large language model in the same as Zuckerberg's tech gone away from his fancy, you know, headsets in 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 the metaverse and refocused on how to apply that within the meta landscape. We've already seen more kind of I'm not going to call it relaxed, but more enterprise usage of Microsoft realizing there's some real value in this, adding it to Bing, trialing it. Of course, had the same problem. It you asked it, yes, I'd like to be able to find the nuclear codes for you, and then. Again, a legislation come in place saying that no uh, nuclear um, submarine will be using AI for the foreseeable future, which in all fairness probably wasn't a bad idea anyway. And then you've got this kind of opposite side where you're kind of going, well, you know, we know it's there. Now it's about kind of ethics. It's about understanding, you know, how do you use it responsibly, you know, and also realizing that you've got people who've got very specialist skills and you know it's never going to uh, outperform them they need to be validating and verifying it that yes you can like you can do with microsoft now it's you know outlook will read your emails it'll add your tasks based on conversations i'm using windows mesh on my other machine at the moment and that whilst i'm using an avatar and it's it's putting me within a three-dimensional space it's listening to me saying, oh, well, I, I'll, I'll do that by next Tuesday. And then next second I get on my to-do list that I've allocated a task that I will complete. Could it pick that task up and move that digital grind to send out an email or a latest specification to a team? Of course it can. Can it you know, replicate what we do on a daily basis? 
absolutely not. So I think the emotional requirement and the curiosity of humans and, and the creativity isn't going anywhere any soon. We can just use this tool as something that will give us superpowers and make our daily grind, digital grind, be reduced tenfold. That's fantastic. Uh, excellent. Jonathan, I could talk to you for another hour. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time on this podcast. But uh, once again, folks, Jonathan Wright, uh, Chief Technologist at uh, testing company Keysight. Thanks for your time again. Always a pleasure. Wonderful. And yeah, I look to the, forward to the next time. And we'll hopefully it won't be our AIs talking to each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'll have to dust off my avatar and see how that uh, see how that goes. All right. Well, uh, folks, thanks for tuning in to the uh, What the Dev podcast. As always, we appreciate you spending a couple of minutes with us every time. 